invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 8, Psalm 8. Be looking at the whole psalm tonight. This is God's inspired word to us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for meekness now, meekness to receive the implanted word. Lord, would you work by your spirit in our hearts towards this end, and would you help us, Lord, to join with the psalmist in worshiping you for your majesty and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple of years ago, I sat down with uh, my oldest son, Cannon, to read a library book. It was a book about monkeys, and uh, each page had pictures of different kinds of monkeys on it, and uh, we, were, we were thoroughly enjoying ourselves looking at these strange creatures, and uh, we were enjoying ourselves until we got to the last page. And on the last page, there was a picture, not of a monkey, but of a man. And the, the, the caption under the picture simply read, You are a monkey too. You can imagine in those, those moments, I quickly slammed the book shut, and I was immediately struck with the folly of unbelief, the folly of rejecting God. This children's book promoting the, the evolutionary worldview of our culture revealed in a profound way the tragedy of rejecting God. In atheism, man becomes nothing more than a highly evolved primate, which, kids, is a, a scientific way of saying that you and I are nothing more than, than really smart monkeys. And, and, and that's actually 
uh, optimistic in, in an atheistic worldview. That, that's about as, as good and as high as man is viewed. When, when atheists get consistent with themselves, they, they actually have a much bleaker view of man than that. I'll give you a, a couple of examples here. Atheist Dan Barker, in a recorded debate, he, he admitted this, you and I are like ants or rats or like pieces of broccoli. Really, in the big picture, there is no value to our species. We are no different than a piece of broccoli in the cosmic sense. He's being honest with where his worldview necessarily leads. French humanist Voltaire uh, is, is even more bleak than this. He speaks of, of humans as tormented atoms in a bed of mud, devoured by death, a mockery of fate. A consistent, atheistic, and evolutionary worldview leads necessarily to this. As one scientist has put it, man is a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. Now here's, here's the irony in all of this. Our culture tells us that, that the way to true fulfillment and, and lasting purpose is, is to get rid of God. Nothing could be more oppressive to your self-actualization than, than some God telling you who you are and, and what you're here for. True freedom, true life, true meaning is, is found in unbounded autonomy. It's, it's found in, in making yourself a God. But in the process of seeking to kill God, man actually kills himself. Unbelieving man attempts to make much of himself and ends up forfeiting human dignity and purpose. In his desire to exalt himself, he actually degrades himself. He becomes nothing more than a blob of tormented atoms in a bed of mud. Our text this evening radically clashes with this degrading view of man. Psalm 8 presents us with an astonishing anthropology. By anthropology, I simply mean a view or, or an understanding of man. Who is man? The anthropology that uh, the psalmist sets forth before us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is radically God-centered. You'll notice that as, as we read it, it, it begins and ends with God all throughout. It is pervaded with God. And uh, you, you might be tempted to think that focusing so much upon God would lead to a low view of man. But it's actually the exact opposite that is the case. The psalmist here teaches us that God's glory, God's glory is the bedrock of human dignity and purpose. 
David begins and ends the psalm by praising God for his peculiar glory. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is covenantal language. David is here worshiping the God who has entered into a special bond with his people. David uses God's covenant name Yahweh, and he describes Yahweh as our Lord, the majestic creator, the the one whose name is set above the heavens. This God has, has stooped. He has come down to enter into relationship with us, to take us to be his and to give himself to us. It's what the scriptures speak of as covenants. And David is here praising this God for the revelation of his glory in creation. This God is manifesting his sovereign power in the heavens. See that the beginning, or rather the second part of verse 1? You've set your glory above the heavens. But David also tells us that through the weakness of infants, he is displaying his glory. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God is so powerful that he can bring his foes to nothing through weak little babies. And so David is here praising God for for the way that the the vast heavens and, and the weakest, most helpless of infants are declaring and showing forth his glory. And as as David comes face to face with God's glory in creation, he he's quickly overwhelmed. He's quickly amazed, quickly astounded. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? As a shepherd, David had spent uh, countless nights out in the fields gazing up into uh, the beautiful dark night sky. It's hard for us to really uh, grasp the, the beauty of what David would have seen on a regular night because uh, we live in an American suburb where, where all the lights and, and everything around us uh, really avails the, the vastness of the heavens and the beauty. But, but if you've ever gone out somewhere into the boonies camping and uh, somewhere where there's, there's no, no lights and, and you, you look up into the night sky, it is, it is breathtaking. And here's, here's David shepherding his sheep, looking up into the sky, seeing the, the multitude of stars, seeing the moon, and, and he is marveling, marveling at the, the massiveness of the universe. 
Children, did you know that there, there are over 100 billion stars in our galaxy? 100 billion. Try to, try to get your, your mind around that. One, 100 billion stars. And as, as you're thinking about that, then, then imagine this. That those 100 billion stars in our galaxy are in a galaxy that is one of what scientists estimate are over 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. This is, this is mind-boggling. We, we can't even begin to get our puny little brains around how great the heavens are. And, and David is sensing some of this here. He, he's sensing the greatness of the heavens. And, and as he looks into the sky, he's sensing the greatness of the God who created these heavens. And this leads him to sense his own smallness and seeming insignificance. In light of this vast creation, in light of the infinitude of glory that God is, what is man? What is man that God would be mindful of him? What, what are we that, that this God, who is so great, what are we that God would care for us? This is David's question. And this is a, a countercultural question. Think about the, the question that the world asks. Th think about the, the question of our humanistic age. It's not what is man that God is mindful of him. Rather, our age asks, what is God that we should be mindful of him? That's what the world says. Man in his self-deification and self-exaltation has evolved beyond the need of God. Religion, we are told, was man's sad attempt in his less advanced state to cope with his weakness and fears and uncertainties about the future. So he, he just created this, this figment of his imagination, this God to kind of appease his, his weaknesses and insufficiencies. But we know better now. That's what the world says. We know better now. We, we don't need God. What is, what is God that we should be mindful of him? How contrary is David's disposition here? He's been brought face to face with the inescapable glory of God in creation. And God's majesty has humbled him in the dust. What am I, Lord, that you would be mindful of me? Who are we? that the infinitely glorious God would care for us. David takes his questions to the Bible. He goes to Genesis chapter 1. In fact, this, this entire psalm is really the, the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 turned into a hymn of praise. 
And the answer that uh, David finds to his question in Genesis is, is quite astonishing. Uh, he finds that, that God has endowed man with a peculiar glory. It's just because God is who he is that man possesses dignity, value, and purpose. Having created this, this vast universe in the space of six days, God, God created man, and, and man was the, the crowning jewel of God's creation. He was created as the image of God and, and was to exercise God's rule over the created order. Look at verse 5. That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, he's speaking of man, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. Why are you and I different than monkeys and broccoli and mud well, David is, is telling us here, it's because you and I are a special creation of the living God. Mankind has been crowned with a peculiar glory and honor which no animal or plant or inanimate object in all of creation has. Man is utterly unique. There, there is nothing in creation like man. And he is so because of God. If man is a cosmic accident and, and there is no creator, then, then you and I have no inherent value or purpose. You take God out of the equation and there is no glory in man. But Psalm 8 sets forth humanity's astonishing significance. It shows us that, that man has a derivative glory, a glory that has been bestowed upon him by God himself. He is under God, of course, but, but he has been crowned with, with a peculiar glory as the image of God. And, and he's been given a, a special task, a special purpose to rule over the earth as a king under God. The question is, when we come to a text like this, is how do we, how do we square this with reality? How do we square this with, with our existence here today? I mean, all, all you have to do is, is turn on the TV or, or look at your own life to recognize that, that the glory, that the, the dominion that is uh, set forth here in this passage is, is less than realized in our lives. Tiny mosquitoes kill millions of image-bearing creatures every year. Tiny little insects killing man. This past month, Hurricane Dorian swept through the Bahamas, leaving 70,000 people homeless and, and killing at least 61. 
Recently, I was on a morning jog and uh, ran past a neighbor's house. This neighbor has a little Yorkie, probably four pounds. And uh, every time I run past their house, this, this little dog, if you can call it a dog, it, <laughs> it barks at me. And uh, typically, it's, it's on a leash, and so I run by, no, no worries. Uh, this morning, I'm running. I notice the dog, and it's, it's charging at me in fury. And I realize suddenly it's, it's not on a leash. In that moment, it's embarrassing to say, but I, I screamed like a little girl. <laughs> and you would have thought that I was running the 100-meter dash in the Olympics. I was gone. How, how do we explain these kind of things? How do we reconcile these realities with, with the glory that is in this text? The, the glory that God is telling us is true of us. I think we, we need to understand here that, that David is speaking of the original creation. He was, of course, not, not oblivious to the, the fall of man into sin, but, but he is marveling at God's original purpose for man in order to instill hope in man of his future restoration. The writer to the Hebrews actually picks up on this, and if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, the writer actually quotes this psalm at length. In Hebrews 2. So in verses 6 through 8, he quotes uh, the psalm, and then the second part of verse 8, he provides an inspired commentary on Psalm 8. He says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, referring to man, In putting everything in subjection to man, God left nothing outside of man's control. But listen to this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. The writer is reckoning with the fact that the high position in which God has created man is not a present reality. We, we do not presently see it. It's, it's not presently our experience. We're, we're killed by mosquitoes. We're running from puny little dogs. That's, that's our experience. And the reason, of course, is due to the fall into sin and the curse which the fall brought with it. But look at, look at verse 9. There's a wonderful but there. So th- this is all true. Everything uh, right now is, is not in subjection to man, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice the language that is used here, how similar it is to Psalm 8. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
The writer to the Hebrews is telling us that the the great dignity and purpose of man forfeited in the fall is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is Yahweh, the one who has set his glory above the heavens. And yet we see him here humbling himself. We see him here taking on human flesh. We see him being born as a weak infant. Remember the infants back in verse 2 of Psalm 8 through which God is defeating his foes? Here's the living God so condescending that he's, he's being born as a weak infant. And being a man, he suffered under the curse of God for man's sin. He died. And it appeared that sin, it appeared that that death had the dominion over him. But friends, he could not be held in the grave. He rose victorious over sin and death. As the first Adam was crowned with glory and honor in the original creation, now Jesus, in his ascension, has been crowned with glory and honor. And this is a glory and honor that will never be marred or undermined by sin. He now reigns in our humanity as the first fruits of God's new creation. And he is exercising dominion over all things. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a a passage that we're familiar with, but I I wonder how often we read this and think of Psalm 8. He's alluding to Psalm 8 here in this passage in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 20, where he speaks of the Father, and he says that the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And listen to this. And he puts all things under his feet. All things under the feet of our Savior, the the glorified God-man. What was forfeited by the first Adam is gloriously restored by the second Adam. The dignity and purpose which God originally endowed man is fulfilled in Christ. He he defeats the powers of sin and darkness, restoring those who are in him to a place of honor. And yet, as as the writer of Hebrews tells us, as we we saw in chapter 2, verse 8, we do not yet see everything under man's But the fact that Christ is exalted in our humanity is evidence that it will one day be so. One day the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And those who are in Christ will reign with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Do you see Do you see how the glory of God in Jesus Christ 
is the bedrock of human dignity and purpose. Nothing evidences our God-given value like the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ didn't come for broccoli. He didn't come for chimpanzees. He didn't even come for the fallen angels. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that in chapter 2. It's amazing. Think about that. The angels fell. Christ didn't come to save angels. He came for man. He came for men and women and boys and girls like you and I. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about that. The gospel should give rise to greater amazement in our souls than David felt when he looked into the beauty and the vastness of the night sky. What is man? What is man that the eternal Son of God would take to himself human flesh? What is man that the Son of God would bear sin and suffer wrath and bleed and die for him? What is man that the second person of the Godhead would would stoop so low in incomprehensible humility? What is man that Christ would will, that he would desire, that he would choose to dwell with him forever in eternal glory? If you want evidence of human dignity, look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Look to the the right hand of of God where Jesus Christ is, is reigning in human flesh. Look to the new heavens and the new earth where where God will dwell forever with his glorified people. That is how much God prizes man. We sang earlier in worship, amazing love. How can it be? This this ought to astonish us that God would place such value upon man. And not only man, but sinful man, rebellious man, you and I, God-hating man. And God said, I love him. He's so valuable to me. It ought to astonish us. Just been struck by this recently. I've been reading a little book by Hugh Martin, uh, an old Scottish Presbyterian. And uh, it's, it's a little book called The Shadow of Calvary. It's a, just a series of sermons he preached on the events leading up to the cross. And as I've read these sermons, I've found myself saying multiple times, I don't know that I've ever understood the gospel. I don't know that I've ever seen the, the, the weight of glory that is here in this message, in this Jesus, who would stoop so low and suffer so great for me, who would love me. 
I think we can just get so accustomed to hearing these things that, that we, we lose the, the sense of the weight of it. This is awesome, friends. There's nothing more awesome than this. So we see here two radically differing anthropologies, two radically different views of men. Who are you? Who are you? Our culture says you are a cosmic accident. You're the result of matter plus energy plus time plus chance and after a few billion years, voila, here you are. It's what the culture says. Psalm 8 says you are a divine creation, the special handiwork of God. Our culture says that you are essentially no different than the animals. You're, you're an ancestor of, of apes. You're really, really in the cosmic grand scheme of things, you're no different than broccoli. That's, that's what the, the culture says. Psalm 8 says you are distinct and above the animals, above everything else in, in the created order, being the very image of God. Our culture says that you have no inherent purpose and, and that thus you, you just need to create your own purpose. Just, just become what you want to be. Do what you want to do. Psalm 8 tells us that you have a God-given purpose. What makes for these radically different views of man? God does. God does. God is woefully absent in the culture's view of man. And thus man necessarily becomes an accident and an animal, a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. But Christianity is pervaded with the glory of God. See that all, all over this psalm and all over the scriptures. And, and this is really important for us to get. Young people, this is really important for you to get. Because you are you're constantly being told by the culture that, that the, way to, the way to greatness, the way, the way to glory, the way, the way to fulfillment is, is to get rid of God and to make much of self. The culture encourages us to make an idol of self. But, but by doing that, it actually debases man. And here we see in our text, a text pervaded with the glory of God, pervaded with the worship of God. And we see a wonderful and astonishing view of man. Man is the creation of God. He's the image of God. He's been endowed with purpose by God. And though the image of God was defaced in man because of sin, and God's given purpose seemed to be forfeited by man because of sin, Christ has come, and he's come as a man. 
He's come as a man to redeem men that we might rule with him as priests and kings forever. So let me ask you, what would you rather be? A random blob of tormented atoms in a bed of mud? Or an image-bearing creature created and redeemed to reign with him forever? Don't be duped by the culture. Its promises are empty. It promises glory, it promises fulfillment, it promises life, but it actually destroys human value and meaning because it refuses to have God in its thoughts. The glory of God in Jesus Christ is alone the bedrock of human dignity and purpose. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the revelation of your glory. We see it in the heavens, Lord. We see it in the vastness of your creation. We see it in man who reflects your glory as your image. We see it, Lord, most clearly in your word and in the gospel. Lord, we praise you for your greatness. And we pray, God, that you would impress upon us in greater measures tonight something of this greatness, that you would cause us to sense, as David did in this psalm, something of your majesty, that we might marvel that such a great God would think so highly of us, that such a great God would place such value upon us, that such a great God would will to crown us in Christ with glory and honor and give us a, a name with Christ and to seat us with Christ in heavenly places. Lord, it is astounding. We pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see it and that you would cause us to feel something of it as well, that we would worship you, God. Lord, we pray for those here tonight who have not seen the glory of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would, you would cause them to sense the folly of the way of this world, that you would expose the lies and the deceit, and the heirs of this present evil age, and of the evil one, and that you would bring them to yourself, and cause them to embrace Christ by faith. Lord, please continue with us in our worship now. Help us to sing with hearts full of gratitude unto you, for all that you are, and all that you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close by singing, Lord, our Lord, thy glorious name.
Amen. Now,